Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Jim Marty reporting from cold and snowy, but uh, blue sky today with snow on the ground here in Longmont, Colorado. How are things in Chicago land, Larry? Jim, nice to say hello to you and have another episode here. Chicago is Chicago, so a day and a half ago it was 70 degrees, and today it's 35 and snowing. Uh, Saturday was so nice that all of the trees started to bloom, all the cherry blossom trees and all that stuff. And now today, everything is getting frosted over and falling off the trees. So, you know, other than that, though, I can't complain. Uh, Things are good. Keeping busy as we get closer and closer to Illinois' application deadline just around the corner here. And it it looks like this is a firm deadline this time, which will be good to get those applications in and uh, see where everything goes. But Otherwise, no complaints. Uh, knock on wood, everyone in my family is healthy right now, and I uh, hope yours is doing the same. Yes, things are good here in Colorado. We don't have that many um, infections and death on the coronavirus, but um, we're in the middle of our lockdown here. You know, the silver lining, if you could call it, is that uh, cannabis has been deemed an essential industry, so our adult use and, mar- and medical marijuana are still open here in Colorado, and most of our clients are reporting very strong sales as people incubate at home. And how is Illinois' adult use program? Um, well, you know, as long as we can keep product on the shelf, the numbers are pretty amazing. As of last week, within the last two weeks, they came out with new numbers in Illinois. Uh, since January 1, has had over $100 million in sales, understanding that we have a constant product shortage. So, you know, those are numbers that are being generated with, a small number of dispensaries because all the new ones haven't come online yet and, and with very limited amount of supply. So uh, we're all looking at that as a positive, uh, that this is a real market that's just waiting to explode once we can kind of get everything in place and once people can come back outside and do the things uh, that they like to do, including traveling to their local dispensary. Um, as we get closer to the application deadline, uh, you know, everyone's getting nervous. I'm getting calls from people all over the place. Uh, looking forward to getting everything rounded up now, but I think I have a good group of clients who are going to put in some good applications and be very exciting to see what happens there. So otherwise, we're, we're doing well with that. Jim, we are very lucky today, and uh, we've really made an effort to bring uh, more and more guests onto our show. Uh, and we have been lucky because we've had some uh, really, really interesting guests from the fields of cannabis. Uh, we had Jay Blakesburg, the photographer for The Grateful Dead, and a number of other people. But today, we really kind of hit a home run uh, because our guest today is a guy named Rob Hunt, and I met Rob boy, years ago at one of uh, uh, some conference in Las Vegas where I was doing a presentation, and he was sitting in the audience. And after I was done, and after we were, you know, he came up to me, we talked for a few minutes, and it became very clear to me very quickly. Not only did he know what he was talking about, uh, but he knew that I didn't necessarily know what I was talking about on everything. And uh, rather than rake me over the coals in front of an, uh, a conference room of people. Uh, he was kind enough to, to chat with me about it on the side. But Rob really, uh, as you'll find out, has uh, a tremendous amount of experience in the cannabis field, primarily in uh, raising capital for people and for groups for investment purposes. But since we are the Deadhead Cannabis Show, uh, Rob will also have some interesting stories to tell us uh, with respect to business deals that he has worked on, both with the Dead and with the uh, Garcia estate. So, Rob, welcome to our show. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate it. Good to be here. It's nice to have you. Yes, and uh, Rob reminded me that uh, he and I worked together a number of years ago uh, when cannabis was just getting started here in Colorado back in 2009, 2010. So uh, nice to get reacquainted with you, Rob. Definitely, Jim. So 
Rob, uh, do us a favor. You know, you have quite a background and, and, and quite an impressive resume in the industry. Give us, you know, 30 seconds of self-promotion. How did you get into the industry? Uh, you know, what are kind of been the highlights and where are you at today? Um, wow. I started in the industry full-time in 2007 after I graduated law school. Um, in law school, I'd done a, I guess, a one-semester kind of a project on the disparity between state and federal law as it pertained to medicinal cannabis back when there was only 11 states in America with uh, with laws in the books. Um, I hit Colorado in 2007 and decided that rather than you know getting directly into the industry, <clears throat> I would do something that would support the industry. So in 2008, I opened up a hydroponics gardening supply store called Rocky Mountain Hydroponics. I grew that from one store to four stores in Colorado and then started opening stores in the Northeast under the name Evergreen Garden Center. By the time it was all said and done, I was servicing north of 100 commercial accounts. Sold that business in 2013 and sold it to a company that had additional stores on the West Coast. So managed the uh, the retail side of that business for a year after that. And then started what um, is now one of the private largest private equity firms in Canvas called Tuatara Capital, which I started in 2014. Then took that into a um, uh, business that was more of a market intelligence firm than anything else called Shingle Hill, where we worked with private equity funds, hedge funds, family offices, and high net worth individuals. Um, really trying to help them price assets in the cannabis industry and you know what an appropriate value for a business is, both on the buy side and the sell side. And then most recently, I've started a new pool of capital, uh, specifically looking at doing a roll-up in the in the California market, and that's called Linnea Holdings. Certainly, I have more questions for you and comments than, than our time slot allows, so we'll just jump in. And here at Bridge West, we do service several hundred cannabis companies nationwide, and they are finding it that today's environment um, even without the coronavirus, is a very difficult uh, environment to be raising capital. Uh, I think the um, significant fall off in the value of the Canadian stocks has really spooked a lot of investors, and a lot of investors are staying on the sidelines. Uh, Rob, jump in there with your comments. Yeah, I think that's right, Jim. You know, 2019 was a uh, kind of a watershed event where the, the luster came off the cannabis industry largely because of unrealized expectations in the Canadian market. So, you know, we've all seen the Canadian uh, values get decimated by, you know, 90 plus percent uh, for a lot of those businesses. But, you know, anyone that was watching the industry closely, I think, could have predicted that the Canadian companies were terribly overvalued. And the reason that they were is because, you know, a lot of investors that weren't able to invest in the United States for fear of illegality uh, decided they did want to invest in cannabis and they felt safer doing so under the, um, the federal guidance of Justin Trudeau's government where cannabis is you know, legalized at a federal level. While I understand you know, kind of the rationale behind it, it certainly didn't translate to a large addressable market. And you know, Canada as a country is smaller than, than California is. So as people started to realize that you know, what was being put forward in, in these um, prospectuses just wasn't achievable, ultimately reality sent, you know, sunk in and you started seeing the values just completely shredded in, in Canada. What you saw as a result and the ripple effect of that is that it really started affecting um, available capital in the U.S. market, both on the public side and, more importantly, on the private side. So if you think of U.S. companies as kind of the proverbial baby with the bathwater, they were getting you know, destroyed as well in value because of the, um, the perceived risk that was you know, kind of attached to how people were viewing Canada. So 2019 was just a really tough time. and uh, Unfortunately, we haven't really seen a recovery come out of that yet. We've seen asset values drop to you know, kind of more appropriate levels of, of where you want to invest. But actually finding people that want to invest in those um, assets has become significantly more difficult as you know most guys that wanted appetite for, for this market are now underwater on their portfolio. 
and they're trying to figure out kind of you know how to salvage what they already have rather than making new investments. Right, right, which makes it a difficult time to bring new projects to these same investment groups where they're you know still reeling from uh, the losses that they've incurred. You know, one of my comments is that when we can get into profitability and taxation, especially in California, but many of these publicly traded Canadian companies were reverse mergers on the Canadian stock exchange of U.S. cannabis companies. And as a CPA and an accountant, uh, one of the things people really underestimate is the uh, extra layer of expense you have when you're a publicly traded company. You have filings, you have audits, you have accountants, you have a whole layer of bureaucracy that a privately held company doesn't have. And you know, with the taxation, the after-tax margins for cannabis companies, a lot of times are not strong enough to support that extra layer of bureaucracy. Uh, Larry and uh, Rob, I'll be quiet and let you comment on that. Well, I, I think that that's true, Jim, uh, in terms of what you say, that uh, you do build that in. But I, but if you forgive me, I, I have a much simpler question. At least it's a simple question for me, for Rob, because it's not very often uh, you get the opportunity to talk to somebody who really has the, the command of the knowledge of the market and the industry that he has. And here's what it is. I sit around with a lot of my friends, and I wear two hats. One hat that I wear is I'm a lawyer in the industry. I have a certain amount of expertise up to whatever level people want to believe that I know what I'm talking about. And, you know, that's all very good. My other hat is I'm just a big fan of marijuana. And like anybody else who's a fan of marijuana, I like to either go to the local dispensary or wherever I can uh, find my marijuana, especially when we're all sheltering in for a while. This is the question that I get, and I'm not smart enough to answer it. All this stuff that you just got done talking about, to me, when I hear that, I'm thinking, well, this is information that I need to know if I want to be an investor in this industry. But what does all of that mean to the average consumer who just wants to be able to go to their dispensaries? Are we still going to have supplies? Are prices going to go through the roof? Should it just be business as usual? How do we translate that information to something that the common marijuana smoker can understand and appreciate? <laughs> it's a great question. And, you know, oftentimes I get wrapped up in the minutia of, you know, what it means from this side of the table. Uh, and I forget that the average consumer uh, of cannabis doesn't care about any of that. What they care about are, are you know, a couple of very simple points. Uh, one is price. One is access. Uh, one is safety. Um, you know, that that's primarily, you know, kind of what drives decisions. You know, I always look at it from the perspective and, you know, I'll use a, um, an analogy to, to kind of go through this. But I think about what 1933 looked like for alcohol um, prohibition as it was repealed. And there's this, you know, prevailing belief that the second that prohibition was repealed, that immediately people started using liquor stores as their primary way to, um, to access alcohol. When, you know, after multiple years of prohibition, it, it didn't happen overnight. You still had the rum runners and you still had, you know, the Bronfmans and the Kennedys crossing the Canadian border and you still had bathtub gin and you still had, you know, backs, um, you know, backwoods moonshine stills. So what it took to, to really migrate people over, and, you know, you can look at the history of Washington state uh, as you think about this, is creating a more efficient marketplace. And that more efficient marketplace, you know, said, okay, in order for people to make this migration over, we've got to be able to offer a uh, better selection, a safer selection at a better price. And if we do, then then that migration happens relatively quickly. If not, then we're artificially keeping alive an illicit market. And that illicit market is going to stay well entrenched. You know, they already have the market share right now. They don't want to give it up. 
And, and that's, you know, that's what we're seeing right now in cannabis. And we're not just seeing it in the producer states like the Washington's, Oregon's and California's, but we're seeing it in the, uh, the consumption states. You know, it's uh, if you think about, you know, where you are in, in Illinois or, you know, let's say New York City, those states never had a robust um, cultivation culture, but they certainly had a consumption culture. So when you think about, you know, the illegality or the illicit market in California, it's very, very different than the illicit market in Chicago. Chicago's illicit market is truly on the consumption side. They're in, importing cannabis from out of state and they're consuming it there, but it, it still represents a huge portion of the industry. In California, it's, it's twofold. It's the, um, the production side that's happening in the northern counties and it's the consumption that's happening, you know, from the, from the consumer. So as a consumer is thinking about, you know, what does all this stuff mean for me? Look, it's, if, if their guy can deliver cannabis um, at a cheaper price with a decent selection, then the illicit market stays viable and it stays, you know, attractive. If, you know, the, if the tax rates drop low enough in California and enough municipalities open up retail stores, then suddenly it becomes more efficient just to go down to your local dispensary where you go, all things being equal on the margin, I'm going to, you know, buy cannabis from the legal place. I know it's been t- tested. I know it's safe. Uh, I know, you know, what's in it. I know where it came from. And the price is, is commensurate and the, um, and, you know, the convenience is better. You know, it's, I, I can do it at, at my time instead of waiting for my guy to show up. So that's, you know, that, that's the major issue that we're dealing with right now is how do you migrate over the illicit market to the legal and how do you do it at a price that, um, that is uh, attractive? Very good point, Rob. And um, let's talk a little bit about the one of the barriers to that changeover. And, you know, many people say over the next you know, three to five years, there's going to be a, a big transition in California from the illicit to the legal market. But one of those hurdles is taxation. That taxation at the cash register in California can be as much as 40 percent. Uh, would you comment on that? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's something that I've been thinking a, a great deal about because, you know, as asset values have dropped, Jim, what we're seeing is, you know, a lot of people outside of the industry right now talking about the fact that, you know, cannabis executives are ill-qualified to, to run these businesses. They don't know how to run an efficient business. And I don't think that any of those executives that have never worked in cannabis have any idea what kind of headwinds you face as a cannabis operator to deal with these tax rates you just alluded to. You know, when you think that the state's uh, excise tax rate is 15% on top of a municipal tax rate that could range from 5 to 15%, uh, then you think about a cultivation tax that, you know, is north of $150 per pound for every cultivator. And then you think about the distribution tax and the manufacturing tax, and then the cannabis business tax of another 10%. And then, you know, on top of that, uh, you've got the granddaddy tax of them all in in 280E at the retail level specifically. You know, it's almost impossible. You know, these these businesses are being set up to fail. And I'm actually in in the process right now of writing an article exactly about this, where, you know, during COVID, I found myself with some free time on my hands. Some you know self-publishing articles on LinkedIn to talk about the uh, the California market and the issues it had going into COVID, and, and taxes you know primarily the one driving factor that's keeping the illicit market artificially alive, and it's because there's too many people with their hands in the pockets of the cannabis operators that there's you know very very little chance without massive amounts of scale that these guys can operate profitably because of how many people are are taking a piece of their business out. Where you know the smarter way to do it, and this is something that Gavin Newsom, as governor out here, is finally starting to realize, it's much better to have a lower tax rate that taxes 100% of the market than it is to have a really high tax rate that at most is only you know hitting 25% of the market because the other 75% is still in the illicit market. So it's how do you find that balance? And then once you've once you've eradicated the illicit market, then you can start migrating a, a higher tax rate back in. But it's kind of like you know the analogy I give here is is the oil industry where 
you know, as oil prices go up in Saudi Arabia, it incentivizes the Canadian tar sands producers to turn on their, their production. But if oil prices drop like they are right now, then there's no way the tar sands guys or even like the Americans can make a profit. So as like prices fluctuate up, then it, it introduces new um, entrants in the market. And for us in Canvas, that's the illicit market. And hopefully that's an appropriate analogy. No, it's very good. <clears throat> I agree 100%. Um, people don't realize how hard it is to be profitable in this industry. I work with my clients all the time on those very issues. And you have to have enough gross profit to be able to pay your taxes and your overhead and still have something left over for you. Um, Larry, before we shift over to music, do you have any more business you'd like to talk about? Well, it's such a trite question, and you know, people always just knee-jerk jump to it. But I get asked it all the time, and rarely do I have a chance to pass it on to somebody else. So, Rob, let me ask you this, and sorry to put you on the spot, but where are we at federally? Where are we going? And if and when are we going to see change in federal law? Your best guess. I'll try to go through it as quickly as possible, but my guess is that you know we're still five years out from federal legalization. Um, you know it will come, but you know realistically, and you know again, COVID's changing things quickly because I think for the first time, uh, I don't think most of you know the, the country is necessarily expecting that Trump will win a second term based on where the economy is right now. But I think as of a month and a half ago, the smart money was was that he would. Uh, the smart money also was that uh, the Republicans were going to hold the Senate. So if you think there's a three a three person majority in the Senate today, and you know even if it was even, you got a tie breaking vote in Vice President Pence, uh, it was a really unfavorable Senate map in, in this election cycle. So maybe the Dems pick up uh, Martha McSally's seat in Arizona. Maybe they pick up um, uh, Susan Collins's seat in Maine. Maybe they pick up um, Tom Tillis's seat in North Carolina. But they're they're certainly losing. They're, they're definitely picking up Gardner's seat in, in Colorado. I think at this point, but they're definitely losing uh, Alabama. You know, you're, they're, they're, the Alabama's not going to run Roy Moore again. And so even if, you know, we pick up four, the Dems pick up four, the Republicans are getting one back, which still puts it at best if, you know, if um, Trump wins re-election, a 50-50 in the, uh, in the Senate. And that's if the Dems, like, run the table. And I think that's, you know, relatively unlikely as well. But even if, even if that were to happen, you know, let's say the Dems won the presidency. Let's say the Dems won the, um, won the Senate. The first thing that they're doing isn't dealing with campus policy. You know, they're, they're dealing with, um, uh, immigration reform. We're dealing with uh, medical, um, you know, insurance reform. There's, uh, you know, healthcare is so much more of an important part of um, of a dem budget or a dem like uh, platform than cannabis is. So, you know, realistically, um, as long as the the Republicans have control of the Senate, which I think likely is at least for the next two years, nothing gets out of committee. You know, it either goes to Crapo's desk or it goes to, uh, you know, um, uh, Lindsey Graham's desk or whoever's going to end up running judiciary. Um, you know, neither of those guys budge. And if they do put it to the Senate floor or put it, put it to, you know, McConnell's desk, then McConnell's not going to introduce it if he doesn't think it's not going to be vetoed by the president. And if Trump sees it as a democratically sponsored bill, which it would be, he's going to veto it on principle unless it comes with, you know, $10 billion in wall funding. So, you know, th there is no movement happening right now um, realistically in the Senate. And that means there's certainly not anything happening in the executive branch. Um, but that's, that can change. It doesn't change by the composition of the Senate. It changes by how many states that are large population states, like in Illinois, you know, going to adult use the way it has, like Ohio, like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, potentially New York, uh, Florida. If those states move to adult use in several years, it doesn't matter, you know, who's in control of the Senate. Those are states that politically move the needle. And if they start deriving, you know, legitimate amounts of tax revenue that's impacting the coffers of their state, 
then you're going to see you know those state houses put a lot of pressure on the uh, the guys in D.C. to say, look, guys, like we can't keep operating something that's this big the way we're operating it. Something's got to change. And whether or not you know you think that this isn't you know priority for you, we're here to tell you that you know we represent a massive amount of your constituency, um, and we have to change it. So I, I think it happens more naturally than it does um, by the nature of you know which side of the aisle you rest on. It's going to happen by you know how much of the population has a robust adult use market. And I think we're probably four years away from seeing the states I just mentioned all have, you know, three or four years of history where actually those programs are up and running and really producing. Um, and that's, you know, following where, where Colorado, how long it took Colorado to ramp up and how long it took Washington to ramp up. I think four years of, of uh, ramp up in adult use is about where you start hitting kind of steady state. Okay. Well, let me ask you this then as a follow-up. Would you say that some of those factors you just got done listing as to what might hold up a bill are those actively playing a role right now in keeping the Safe Banking Act from being considered in the Senate? Ah, it's a good question. Yeah, you know, I think there's all this. Um, uh, I think there's fluctuating views on what it's going to take to get that through. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, there is no motivation right now to to get it out of the Senate. You know, I think you can put almost any bill right now on the floor of the House, and it's going to get a committee hearing, and it's going to get a vote in the committee, and it certainly will, you know probably make it to the House floor. But once it goes to the Senate, you know, it's, look, if, if McConnell said anything pretty overtly that we should you know, listen to, it's that he is the Grim Reaper and he is where bills go to die. You know, any bill that's been passed by the Dems that hits his desk, he, he just disregards it. He has no intention of doing anything. I and mean, McConnell has one goal in mind right now, and that's confirming judges. It has nothing to do with Democratic legislation. So, you know, let's let's call for what it is and know that if it's a, a bill that, you know, came to his desk because the Dems passed it, uh, unless it's like, you know, tacked on as a rider, like, you know, if, if the banking bill is a rider to a must pass piece of legislation, you know, maybe something that happens during COVID that, you know, uh, gets tacked on. We'll see. But if we look at what's happened with COVID so far, it's actually been, you know, prejudice against cannabis businesses uh, as far as, you know, their lack of access to SBA right now. So it's, you know, I don't, I, I, we can't look at the federal government right now with cannabis on anything and think they're our friends. They just aren't. I want to take a quick break to thank you for listening to today's show and to invite you to listen to all the other great MJ Bulls cannabis podcasts, like Raising Cannabis Capital, the show which features cannabis entrepreneurs that are raising money to expand their organization. Tune in each week on Thursdays and Sundays to hear founders of awesome cannabis companies talking about their business and their fundraising plans. Who knows? Maybe you'll discover the future Amazon or Apple of cannabis on the Raising Cannabis Capital podcast. No, I agree with all that. And sometimes the, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Um, you know, we can advise our clients and we can um, mi- mitigate the effects of not being able to deduct your selling general and administrative expenses. You know, if that gets fixed, what comes next? Is it a federal excise tax? Which government agency is going to be the first one to knock on your door? Will it be the FDA, Food and Drug? alcohol, tobacco. So at least the environment we have right now is an environment we've dealt with for 10 or 12 years, and we kind of know the rules. Um, Like I said, the repeal of 280E might bring on a host of other government intervention in our industry that we have no idea what it might be. Yeah, it's another great point, Jim, and something that I've been talking about now for probably, you know, seven years of, you know, everyone talking about reclassifying cannabis away from Schedule 1. In my um, my reaction is careful what you wish for. You know, you go to Schedule Two or Schedule Three, and now you're in the purview of the FDA. 
the FDA doesn't recognize dispensaries. <laughs> it recognizes uh, double-blind placebo studies and, uh, and, and you know, going through um, forward-thinking drug development. Isn't that what we just ran into with CBD, right? CBD is legal, and the next day the FDA says, hey, we're, we're regulating it now, and all of a sudden CBD edibles, which people have been eating for years, going to have to go through all of those studies so yeah that's a, that's an excellent point yeah and that's that's true of you know what you're going to see on on other parts as well i mean if you completely deschedule canvas you know so it actually falls in the purview of atf um we don't know what they're going to do what we know right now is the only reason none of these people are picking up none of these alphabet agencies are picking canvas up right now is because of the schedule one status where as far as they're concerned it doesn't exist it's not in anyone's purview um so it's uh you know largely still uncharted waters and the other thing i caution people is you know, that's great that right now, you know, you think illegality is such a bad thing. But if you're an investor in the space, remember the second that, you know, illegality ends is the second that, you know, TPG and KKR and Blackstone and every other major private equity group does get involved. And anyone that's, you know, in there right now, you know, hopefully they've got enough stakes in the ground they can be sellers at that point. But if not, you're just going to get run over. So, you know, the, the best thing you can have happen to you is, you know, five years of building a business and to the point that, you know, it's actually profitable, it's strong, and it's an attractive acquisition target. Or it's you know something that you can then put on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, but right now there's very few of those groups. So illegality, in many ways, is your friend as an investor and as an entrepreneur. Well, that's a great way to transition to talk about some music. How about a friend of the devil is a friend of mine? <laughs> yeah, look, going from one outlaw culture to another, you know, I think uh, you know, you're either on the bus or off the bus, right? So, Rob, you've got some history with the Grateful Dead family and Jerry's family. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I'll preface it with saying that, you know, not not super well, but I've had the unique experience over the last several years of, of getting to know these guys a little bit um, due to the fact that we we pitched them on trying to do a, a Grateful Dead brand and doing a Garcia brand of, uh, of cannabis. And through the process, you know, I was able to spend a fair amount of time with uh, Grateful Dead's managers, uh, guys named Bernie Cahill and Greg Seuss over at Activist. And um, and then, you know, Garcia's manager as well, as, um, a guy named Mark Allen down at Red Light. And, um, you know, the, the Grateful Dead and the Garcia family were very interested in doing canvas. And you probably saw the announcement recently that the Garcia family did, you know, make a decision to, to work with the team out of, um, out of the Northeast. Um, you know, but, but from my perspective, you know, Dead had my entire, you know, adult life. Saw my first show at age 16 in New York City, um, 92088, I think was my first show at MSG. Um, you know, saw 147 Grateful Dead shows with Garcia and didn't miss a Jerry Band show for the last two years of his life. Um, you know, for me, it was a, a passion thing. Like, you know, Tuatara, my, my company at the time had just done the Willie Nelson transaction. And my reaction is, you know, Hey, I think Willie's an absolute you know star and he's done amazing things for cannabis. But, you know, if you really want, you know, the, the band that in my mind, you know, represented cannabis culture, you had to go with Grateful Dead. So I made a real push internally to, to try to do something with those guys. And in the process was introduced to, to members of Jerry's family. And, um, spent a fair amount of time with their attorneys and with their managers and, you know, it ultimately didn't work out, but I made some great friends out of the, the process and to this day keep in touch with a lot of those guys and um, really, really feel fortunate that when I do see the people that I consider to be, you know, the, the true Grateful Dead family that, you know, I'm now embraced by that, by that group of people. And I feel just really, really fortunate to, to have had that opportunity. For sure. That's a, that's a great opportunity. That's, you know, for all the, all the deadheads, you know, want to become buddies with somebody on the inside and, you know, to have a chance to do it is, is great and a lot of fun. But what I liked about your answer is it's very clear uh, that this isn't just a business arrangement for you. This is 
your 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 relationship with the Grateful Dead long predates that. Uh, I think you said at least back to 1988, um, and uh, that's fantastic. You know, that that's really what drives Jim and I. I think is back the first time we met. We talked business for five minutes until we started talking the Grateful Dead, and then we never quite got back around to business. Um, and you and I, Rob, have uh, had more than our share of uh, late night conversations at some of these conferences, uh, comparing shows and eras of the band and and all sorts of things like that. Um, give me, give us one or two of your, uh, you know, Grateful Dead with Jerry, you know, top, you know, three or four highlights of what you saw back in the day. Uh, wow. I mean, okay. So first I'll preface this by, by saying that, you know, I'm, I'm 47 now, which meant that, you know, I caught the last seven or eight years of Grateful Dead and I did great for the number of shows I saw, but I, you know, I missed the late seventies. I missed the early eighties, you know, for me, you know, 88, as a 16 year old was, was about kind of as well as you could do. Um, and so there's a lot of people that think, you know, I didn't, I didn't see the, uh, the best of the best with that band, you know, but respectfully disagree. I think some of the best things that ever happened, you know, happened in, in the, uh, the late eighties and the early nineties, um, not necessarily full shows, but definitely like, you know, uh, single highlights, but things that I, that I got to do, um, let's see, I think as a whole show, six fourteen um, six fourteen ninety one RFK, was probably you know the favorite show that I saw, which is uh, helps with Franklin's estimated dark start open the second set, um, you know, which is ironically the same same opening of the second set that happened on nine ten ninety one with Branford Marsalis. So obviously the band liked that combination well enough that when they brought Branford out, they did it again. Um, let's see, I, I I caught the first Branford show at three twenty nine ninety, which was the Eyes estimated second set opener and the Bird Song in the first set, which is you know kind of regarded as, as really special. Was that Nassau Coliseum? Uh, that was Nassau Coliseum. Yeah, it was three twenty-eight, three twenty-nine, three thirty. It was a three-night run. Uh, and I still think the twenty-eighth was probably my favorite show of the three. But um, but I caught all three of those and amazing. You know, I think that whole March nineteen ninety run. You know, you had uh, you had um, Nassau, you had Albany, you had Hartford, which were announced basically as Warlock shows. Um, you know, it was a, a short, like 15 show, I think spring tour. And it was, you know, at cap center it was Phil's 50th birthday at the, uh, cap center in Landover where they broke out loose Lucy. So it's just an amazing, amazing run. I got to see a lot of, you know, kind of the bigger breakouts that happened during that time. So I saw the, uh, the new speedway boogie breakout in Oakland. I saw the here comes sunshine breakout in, uh, Tempe, Arizona. Uh, I got to see the, uh, the black throated wind breakout in Landover. I saw the introduction of a lot of the new songs, like, you know, so many roads first time played, um, uh, days between first time played and you know the the thing i think that you know sticks out for me is you know the best part of it was that i got to see the last 37 grateful dead shows in a row uh you know every single one of them up all the way to chicago so you know i saw the good and the bad that happened during that time and there's some really crappy shows in that final tour but there was some also you know some things that you know were amazing like you know pittsburgh um pittsburgh second set opener where it was pouring rain they played four rain songs in a row but even though it might not have been something, you know, that you, know, you look back on and say it was the best played thing you've ever seen, it was one of those things that at the time was was pretty spectacular to be there for. Uh, you know, and I feel that way of, you know, seeing Deer Creek shows, you know, I don't think you can ever go wrong with that venue. And, you know, Deer Creek was canceled one night of, of that tour and the other night was mediocre, but it was still Deer Creek. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things that you look back on thinking, you know, 1995, like, um, you know, the, the breaking out of uh, Visions of Johanna that was played a couple times that year, which, you know, absolutely amazing. The first one in Salt Lake City was, you know, to me, one of the more magical things I've ever seen. So a lot of good stuff that happened during that period. Well, those are some great memories. Uh, it brings back a lot of memories for me, too. Um, I certainly was in the 
groove at that time as well. Um, I did a lot of Red Rock shows in the 80s till uh, I was at the last Grateful Dead show at Red Rocks in 87 when they outgrew the venue. My last show, um, and it was a very sad show because Jerry Witt just wasn't in good health, was three months before he passed away in May of 95 in Las Vegas at the Silver Bowl. And so that's a fond but sad memory. Yeah. I saw every Vegas show they played. They played it five years in a row. And I think a total of 14 shows over five years. Um, great venue. You know, Silver Bowl was a lot of fun. And there's always, a, you know, most of the time, super, super hot inside that place uh, with like heat lightning in the background. So it always made for, you know, kind of a spectacular uh, visual. If you remember, there was a thermometer above the stage right above yeah, where jerry yeah. was playing at midnight it would show 100 degrees well, i remember um being hosed down inside the uh inside the fill zone just to keep people from passing out on the floor at a couple of those shows it was so darn hot and then, of course, then all sixty thousand of us would head down town to las vegas and party all night and you know what the funniest part about that was Nobody stood out in the Las Vegas crowd, right? If you if you all went to downtown Chicago afterwards, you'd be like, oh, there's the deadheads. You walk into the casinos, and it's kind of hard to tell who the deadheads are from everybody else. They all look a little crazy. I remember one time I was at a table. I went to most of those Vegas shows, too, and uh, I was playing blackjack after the show late at night, loud and rowdy casino. I think it was lots of fun next to Circus Circus, and the dealers were kind of getting down on the, on the deadheads, you know, sort of you know, dissing them and putting them down. I said, hey, to the dealer, hey, I said, cheer up. These guys are really bad card players. Right. And they're all stoned. <laughs> yeah. Even though like two-thirds of the Grateful Dead songs are about playing cards. Exactly. Yeah, you think we'd uh, be a little bit better at it. Well, no, but, but most of their songs are about being bad at playing cards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's true. But, but, but not knowing it. I think that's the whole idea of loser, right? <laughs> I was uh, still pretty high from the show one night in Vegas, and I was absolutely clairvoyant. I busted that dealer so many times the table was cheering for me. <laughs> That's really funny because, Jim, I, I spent most of my time in Slots of Fun after those shows because that was back before, you know, a lot of the really big hotels we know today in Vegas were built. And Circus Circus was like a pretty, like, you know, viable place to stay. So I remember Slots of Fun being like the spot that like half of the show would empty out to. So uh, I'm sure that you and I probably passed each other and rubbed shoulders back then before we, uh, before we knew each other. I bet we did. I played a lot of blackjack after the shows at Slotsville. But the question is where I was out there for the 92 shows, the, the Steve Miller year. And we were the big whole group of guys. And we wound up staying at the Golden Nugget in downtown Las Vegas, you know, and went that route. And it was fun. It was, you know, a slightly different scene, but they had the midnight steak and egg breakfast that all the deadheads were at after the shows. Um, you know, and it was, and it was tremendous fun. And for me, it was wonderful because I always liked Steve Miller. And then there was the whole fly like an Eagle or you know, some of that stuff in the seventies. that got a little too kitschy for me. But it was, I loved seeing him up on stage with the dad and, you know, and he, he was playing guitar right along with him, having a good old time. Oh my goodness. I, I, there, I got to take issue with it, man. I thought that was the worst morning do I ever saw. Really? Uh, was the Steve Miller do. <laughs> and right as like, it gets to the point before, you know, the guess it doesn't matter anyways. And you've got the soaring, you know, solo that, for me, like makes a morning do. Yes, that was like they couldn't turn Steve down. I remember like Phil looking over at um at uh you know the monitors, like basically giving this look of like turn this asshole down. Like <laughs> we can't have Steve playing like this. Uh, and I remember just sitting there going like, come on, like of all the great dudes, like why is Steve Miller up there doing this right now? But and and I'm a, I'm a Steve Miller fan as well. It's not that I dislike him as a player. I just sure. thought that was a terrible mix uh, between the two. Hey, Kurt. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but um, didn't Chuck Berry open for him one year in Vegas? I, I want to say yes. I know Santana was one year. I know Steve Miller was one year, but I think Chuck Berry was one year as well. Actually, if it wasn't, it might have been Chuck Berry. Actually, might have been Portland Meadows. I think he might have been Portland, Oregon, in uh, in like '93 or '95. And one year they had Roger McGuinn open for them. And I'm I'm going to Google this right now because uh, I can't stand not knowing. Um, so here's my next question for you, though, um, Rob. Let's you know you you saw more than enough dead shows with Jerry that you know you you fill that side of your platter very well. What do you think of John Mayer and Dennett Company? Are you a fan? Do you like going to their shows? You know, I've only seen them uh, play one time, and it was because, you know, um, the the managers of, of Dead & Co. had invited me to go to the show, and I graciously accepted. Uh, I saw them at the Hollywood Bowl last year and, you know, had a really nice time. You know, I, look, I, I think John Mayer is an exceptional blues guitar player. Um, for me, it's difficult, you know, like I, I'm a... I'm a Grateful Dan fan, you know, for sure, but I'm a Garcia band, a Garcia fan first. And for me, like the Garcia band was probably the thing that um, if you were to say, you know, pick your favorite band to go see live and, you know, your favorite music to listen to, it's definitely JGB over the Grateful Dead. No, I'm exactly on any given night. I would have just as soon see the Jerry Garcia band as the Grateful Dead. Yeah. I mean, I think for me on any given night, I would have taken it, you know, nine times out of 10, I would have taken the Garcia band. I think that the, the absolute like pinnacle of Garcia I saw was with the Grateful Dead. But for consistency's sake, you know, going to the Warfield is like going to church. And, uh, you know, every night that you go in there, you can sit there, have dinner and have drink service and sit and, and watch your favorite musician play with, you know, Melvin playing you know, keys and John Kahn playing bass. And it was about as good as it got. But, um, <clears throat> but yeah, you know, it's um, with John Mayer playing with him. Look, I, anything that keeps this alive and keeps this whole thing moving forward, I think is incredible. And I think that John Mayer is obviously plays really well with the band. They really respect him as a player. Uh, they've played enough together now that there's times that, you know, I'll be listening to Sirius Radio and I won't look down to see what it is. And I'll think that it's, um, you know, Grateful Dead playing and it's Dead & Co. So there's definitely times where, I, where, you know, I'm amazed at how well he's got the tone down, sort of the way that John Catalisic did for a while when he was playing with Further. Um you know, but but right now, if you were to say, you know, would you go see Dead and Co. or would you see a different iteration? Like, I'd, I'd probably go see Joe Russo's Almost Dead before I'd see Dead and Co. Just because I think the energy right now for J. Rad is just so high. But anything that keeps the Grateful Dead tradition going, I think I'm just I'm 100% supportive. And uh, and for me, I don't play favorites. You know, I'm just su super stoked that's become such a part of like the American tradition of music that I don't think this is going away any more than I think like Mozart and Bach and Beethoven are going away. I, just, I think it's it's too big. It's it's too um it's too prevalent. And I think that, you know, there's certain songs in the American, like, canon of music. Um, you know, if you think about, like, the great American novel versus, like, the great American songbook. Um, you know, I think Ripple will go down as a song that kids will be singing at camp in 50 years. And I love that. Well, here, one of the things that Jim and I always talk about, and, and this fits right into it, um, is that what, what, one of the things that we love the most is that we go to these shows. I go to the dead, I go see fish, and I go with my kids. I bring my kids with me. And they want to go and they want to be there. And it's something that we can do together. We both love the music. And it always makes me laugh because to this day, I can tell you that if I walked into my father's uh, living room and w went through his record collection, I don't think there's a single record in there that I would really have any true interest in listening to unless we were, you know, hankering for a good show tune or something. Right. And my father never really had all that much interest in the music that I was listening to. But I love the way that the dead completely span the generations and jim let me tell you tell him about your son as well his son's playing with a one of the top fish cover bands around it's fantastic that's awesome yes he's in one of the 
top keyboard players in Denver. Uh, he plays at Beyond Key, where um, Dead Bands play all the time. John Cadlestick has played there recently. And uh, now we have a lot of conversations at my house with our two sons. And uh, I'll come back around and they'll be planning their future. And I'll just say to them, that path is for your steps alone. Yes, nice. Uh, Absolutely. Well, I'll give you an anecdote. Uh, I lost my father about 13 years ago, and uh, he was never supportive of me being a deadhead when I was you know, out on tour with the band. Um, but the day that he passed, I went and checked his. He had a five-disc CD changer, and uh, four out of the five discs in his changer were, were Garcia, um, which you know gave me just um, amazing thrill. You know, and he he became a big Garcia Grisman fan. That kind of is what got him into it. And then he started listening to. Um, you know, more of uh, the, the double live disc of Garcia band from the early 90s. But uh, it was one of those things that, you know, when, when I opened that up and, and got to see that he'd come around, um, it wore my heart in a way that you have no idea. And now I'm watching it with my kids who are four and five. And, you know, I'd love to say they're Grateful Dead fans. They are not Grateful Dead fans. They are huge fish fans, though. My daughter at age five knows all the words to Meat Stick and all the words to Haley's Comet. And, you know, she's singing... She can tell you 20 different uh, fish songs. You know, like we get in the car and she's like, put fish on, which to me is you know incredible. And she loves the fact that there's a lot of fun songs like Contact or Fee that uh, that she can sing. But whenever I play Grateful Dead songs and I try to get her into ones that I think would be sort of, you know, really nice, like, you know, Working Man's Dead, American Beauty style, like American ballads that, uh, that she'd get into. And she's just, it hasn't hit yet. It will, but it hasn't yet. And how about you, Rob, on fish? How about with new fish? I love fish. Like for me, like you know, when, when Trey played with um, when Trey played with the Dead for um, uh, fairly well, that was a dream come true. You know, I, I started seeing Fish before I started seeing the Dead. My first Fish show is you know, when Burlington, Vermont, when I was thirteen or fourteen years old, just happenstance. And you know, I went on Fish tour, like you know, full summer Fish tour in nineteen ninety one, when there was like twelve of us on Fish tour. So like you know, my in many ways, like my first love as a band that like I felt close to, where I knew all the band members and you know, got to hang out with those guys. In the early 90s, you know, Fish was really accessible. And so, you know, I've seen, you know, far more dead shows. But over the years, I still try to catch Fish two or three times a year. And, you know, I, I still couch tour them. You know, I, I, I watch Fish a lot more than I see um, any other band because there's so much of what they've done in the last 10 years that you can pull up on YouTube that um, it's just amazing sound quality and great visual quality. So hard not to like those guys. And if you were to say, you know, who my favorite guitarist is, I mean, Garcia, it's 100% but hard to deny just how amazing Trey is as a guitar player. Couldn't agree more. Larry and I uh, actually went, hooked up at uh, Fairly Well in Chicago for the 50th. And um, boy, what I always remember about that show is, uh, I believe the first song was Box of Rain, but the second song was, um, oh, what the hell was the second song? But a ripple. Oh, it was uh, Jack Straw. And a ripple just went through the stadium. The energy was incredible. Which, by the way, is um, happens to be the Garcia's attorney's favorite Grateful Dead song. So I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of Jack Straw as well. It's the first song I ever saw the Dead play on, on 92888. It was Jack Straw, Thea Mama Tried, Big River to open the first set. So that was, uh, like I'll, I'll never forget the feeling of seeing Jack Straw for the first time. So here, when you talk about, uh, you know, fish and, and and all of that, you know, I'm a late comer to fish because I was, I was so invested in the dead first. And then as fish was coming on the scene, I had already, you know, gotten into kids and all of that. And I just didn't have the the bandwidth to, to go out and pull them in as well. But I've developed a whole new appreciation for them over the years. And 
you know, as, as time goes by, my appreciation develops more. So this last year, I realized that Trey is now the same age that Jerry was when Jerry died. Yet here's Trey, still alive, still kicking, you know, and we could get into a whole different discussion about how he handled his heroin problem and how his bandmates supported him versus what happened with the dead. But be that as it may, he's he's to me now the the living example of what I always kind of thought Jerry would be. Oh, Jerry will be there forever. We'll be old and we'll, we'll still go see Jerry. Well, you know, not only is Trey still playing, um, but he's he's playing hard and strong and good. But the other part of it is with Trey, and this ties into what you were saying before about going to see Dead and Company, which I completely agree with everything you said. And I'm glad you were able to say it in a way that I've never quite been able to say it. But a few years ago, my wife and I were vacationing out in Jackson, Wyoming, and she has a cousin who has a daughter who lives out there, and daughter's old enough that you know she's just at that age where she just missed Jerry, um, but totally got you know dived into fish and 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 caught the Grateful Dead buzz anyway, and you know knows all about them, and 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 she and her husband love to go see Dead and Company, and we were talking about it, and I was trying to explain to them why I do like Dead and Company, and it's fun, and like you say, the scene and just continuing all of that is great. But at the end of the day, it's just, it's not really the same. And they kept saying, oh, but, you know, how can you say that? John Mayer is such a good guitar player. So I finally turned to them and, you know, I, I, I was very proud of myself for this. And I said to them, imagine going to see Fish with John Mayer playing lead guitar instead of Trey. <laughs> right? yeah, John yeah. Mayer's a great guitar player. But he can do it, but it's not Trey. It's not Jerry. It's, it's John Mayer. And, and I love him. And I thought it was great when they let him play, you know, Jerry's Wolf guitar. I thought that was amazing. But, you know, if I'm going to go out and hear a show, you know, if I have a choice between one or the other, I'll take what I have and enjoy it. But, you know, you just have to understand and appreciate that for guys like us who saw the real thing, it's never going to quite be the same. Hey, uh, listen, guys, we've run way over on our time. I could talk to you about this all afternoon. Uh, I want to make a maybe place a marker in closing that as we sit here today, uh, Dead and Company has not canceled their summer tour. Let's hope they don't. Let's hope this pandemic subsides and we can go back to having concerts again. Um, but thank you very much, Rob. A very good job. I really appreciated all your stories. Um, Larry, thanks for all your input. Uh, maybe we'll have you back again and we can pick this up with some more fish stories. I, I'd love that. Thanks, guys, for having me on. A lot of fun. Really, really enjoyed it. Absolutely. You can always tell the good shows because Jim's telling me it's time to stop. And I'm thinking, we just got started. <laughs> I know, I know. But hey, Larry, you want to sign this off? I will sign us off this week. Jim, hope all is well with you, and uh, things continue to go well for you out in Colorado. Rob, uh, as always, man, a pleasure to talk to you. It's been too long. We have a lot of catching up to do. Glad to hear things are going well for you. Thank you so much for agreeing to spend a few minutes with us and uh, share your words of wisdom, both on uh, marijuana and on the Grateful Dead. Um, and to all of our listeners, have a great week. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? 
then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.